Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I am Ron Martin. And we are thrilled you are listening. Today we're going to talk about religious pluralism. I know this is something that you've studied a lot, Ron, and something that you love to discuss. So, Ron, what do you think as we start the show? (laughs) Well, like you mentioned, Nate, this is uh, one of my favorite subjects. I have so many that are parallel in my enthusiasm for them. A a few weeks ago, a few episodes ago in the show, we talked about tolerance and pluralism is very closely linked to the tolerance debate going on today. And then I think it's really one of the more interesting uh, philosophical areas to look at, both religiously and culturally. Much like tolerance, pluralism comes from two strands in our society, this really wonderful positive view, which we usually call something like pluralistic, like a pluralistic culture or a pluralistic society. And then we have pluralism, which those magic three letters attached to the back of a word (laughs) turn it into a system of thought, a worldview, if you will, that changes it into something sometimes a little mysterious and oftentimes a little negative. Unfortunately, with pluralism, both terms are labeled, generally speaking, pluralism. And so I always talk about this as the difference between pluralism and pluralism, because after all, they are plural. Let's jump into this, and I'll give you some uh, delineations in, in how we want to approach this. As we get started, it's good to note that the desire, I think, of a lot of people that propose pluralism is a good one. Yes. Everybody wants acceptance and diversity and love and all these wonderful characteristics, in fact, characteristics that Jesus himself commanded. And yep. so those are noble aspirations. And it's not the intent or the aspiration, I think, that people get wrong, but rather bad ideas can and get the, us into the wrong place. And the way that these ideas often creep into culture and society You know, sometimes it's inadvertent, other times it's intentional, but the way things popularly get used, they lose the real essence. As we know, words have meaning, but if we don't pay attention to those meanings, words can shift meaning. We saw that in tolerance, and we really see it in the idea of pluralistic societies or pluralism, as uh, as we mentioned. So let's talk about the positive pluralism first. I think people will find this uh, interesting and exciting. The way I define positive pluralism is it's a philosophy that can only exist in a democracy where certain freedoms are held sacred. Things like statism, uh, where the state uh, is an autocratic kind of state, or what we call totalitarianism, despotic rule, none of these things can provide a fertile ground for pluralism to exist in. Uh, Most secularists see pluralism as some kind of bulwark against fundamentalism, and of course most uh, religious people, people of faith, see pluralism with great anxiety as some kind of restriction on the discussions about religious freedom. But positive pluralism goes something like this. It really seeks to defend three primary principles. And I want you to just tell me, Nate, if these sound just a little bit familiar. The first thing that a pluralistic culture, maybe we'll use that term as much as possible, that the first thing that that sort of pluralism wants to defend is that human rights are inalienable that they are granted by an authority other than humans themselves. You could call that rationality. You could call it God. But it's basically recognized that human rights come from, are defined by and defended by humans as something inalienable. And as you mentioned that, Ron, we should remember that there are no human rights if there is no standard greater than ourselves. That's right. (laughs) If we're all just the product of chance and time, 
and survival of the fittest is the only way, then there are no genuine human rights. Yeah, there's only two choices on that point. One is natural determinism, and the other one is totalitarianism, where we will somehow yield our rights to someone that we think is smarter or somebody who just simply takes the power over us. You know, no one wins in that scenario. So as we talk about human rights, I just had to mention that if you firmly believe in human rights, you have to kind of firmly believe in the giver of those human rights. Yes. In other words, God. Yep, yep. It's a very fundamental principle, although not popular. (laughs) Uh, The second thing that a pluralistic culture wants to defend is freedom of speech. And it wants to protect freedom of speech at all costs. If anything, we want to err on the side of more freedom than less because speech is how we communicate ideas. Ideas, as rational people, is how we defend the concept of truth, of justice, of love, of morality. Without freedom of speech, there are no human rights because you can't speak against the abuse of those rights. Then, of course, the last one that we would seek as part of a pluralistic society is the freedom of press so that those speeches, those ideas can be printed, be exchanged, be documented, debated. All these things build into a culture that we would call pluralistic. Now, you might think that some of these sound familiar because, indeed, the framers of our nation during the Revolution took these principles as so sacred that they were willing to go to war for them, so important that they were debated, codified, and put into our Constitution. It's very framework, certainly the Bill of Rights, The Constitution itself, the Declaration of Independence, are founded on these principles, and it was truly intended to be, maybe it took a while to mature and get there, as we know, but it was intended to be pluralistic in its scope. And what that meant was, is each individual had a distinct, intrinsic value to them. They had rights, whether you call that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, according to the Declaration, or in any way the right to defend their own liberty, These things were valuable, the freedom of speech, the freedom of press. All of these things are what make our liberty so important to us. This is what our country was founded on. Pluralism, in the sense of the good pluralistic culture, mandates those rights. And it mandates the freedom to say, here's my ideas, here's my thoughts, even if it means I don't like you for them, but I'll defend your right to keep speaking, to publish what you want, to build what you want, and then let's sit down and have a conversation and see what comes from it. Prejudice goes both ways. Our great desire for Egypt and everything that you know we've been calling the Arab Spring, all those nations, all those peoples that are now marching for their rights, we truly want human rights to win. Absolutely. And uh, as Christians, we know uh, and, and firmly believe that those rights would come from our creator, from God himself. But if we aren't willing to go down that path of this kind of positive, pluralistic pluralism, we're fooling ourselves. So clarifying, good pluralism is being able to embrace people that think yep. differently than me, that believe yep. differently than me, and, and, and love maintain them their, Maintain their right to believe what they want to believe. Absolutely. Yeah. We all agree that's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. And those are the thing. values that are espoused and commanded in Scripture. Yep, yep. It's the core of our society. But... What happens, and we saw, again, the same thing in this concept of tolerance. We see a shift, almost an inversion of pluralism that somehow has translated into this idea that says not only do all voices have the right to be heard, 
but all voices are equal in their statement of the truth. And this usually turns into, particularly in religious pluralism uh, or philosophical pluralism, it turns into the kind of statement that says, you know, we're all climbing the same mountain. You're climbing from the north, I'm climbing from the south. The road is different for us, the terrain is different. Maybe your path is smooth and easygoing and mine is rather rugged and rocky and, and you get to the top without breaking a sweat, but I get to the top and I'm ravished. But we both get to the top, don't we? In the idea of faith and the culture of faith, it basically says all paths lead to God. And it doesn't propose that all paths lead to God. It dictates that all paths lead to God. I wish it were like that wouldn't, in the natural sciences. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I was a chemistry major on, and there are many tests that I didn't study enough for mm. that I thought, man, if only all paths led to an A on this test. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, <laughs> and we know that that doesn't work It just it anywhere just else. Doesn't. The, the other day I was on an airplane. I was having a conversation with a pilot just before we took off out of Durango here, and I've noticed in my weeks of traveling that when they take off from Durango Airport, they go south to gain altitude quite a bit before they go over the Rockies, obviously to avoid turbulence, but more importantly, to avoid mountains. I was discussing this with the pilot with his flight plan because I always encourage them, if they can, to get permission to fly up the Animas Valley because it's just so beautiful in these mornings. And the pilot looked at me and says, we have one rule in this airplane. And I said, well, what's that, sir? And he said, we don't go through mountains. We go over or around them. <laughs> and I think, why is it that we make the assumption in the physical science or in the philosophical sciences and, and in religion that these same rules don't apply? You know, we can't create a path that doesn't exist as much as we might like to. But remarkably, this is a very, very, very popular philosophy. And I think it really brings up the question of how we engage in thinking about truth, about religion, about faith, but uh, essentially about truth. And again, we've kind of inverted the principle that absolute truth or propositional truth as stated somehow just floats out there and they're all equal. And uh, this is how pluralism invades our churches, our classrooms, our, our, our thinking about life, morality, God even who Jesus is. And what we want to do is step back a little bit and examine a few of our assumptions about what truth is, about what liberty is, because a pluralistic society is all about liberty, and liberty is a result of truth. We somehow flip that around, and we want to think of it differently. We want to think that truth as relative, your truth sets you free and my truth sets me free, but that would be like saying to the pilot, don't gain that altitude. Just set the course direct to Denver, and we take off, and we head straight there maybe 200 feet and see what happens. And it doesn't work that way. There are laws of rationality, the law of non-contradiction, the law of evidence, you know, these things that we want to look at. And obviously, after we see so many planes plow into the side of the mountain, we realize the rule is, we gain altitude. <laughs> and Ron, who was it that said that truth leads to freedom? Ironically, Nate, the person who, who stated that so succinctly was Jesus himself when he said the truth will set you free. Once again, our culture wants to invert that and says that freedom is that everybody's truth is valid. When I was a student right outside here on the library, there was a huge plaque kind of set into the stone that quoted that wonderful saying of Christ in John 8, saying mm. that the truth shall set you free. 
And while I was a student, that plaque was smashed in. It was smashed in and broken. And it was replaced with a more modern and much less offensive quote. But I think it's interesting that such a true statement from Jesus would literally be smashed at a place of academic pursuit. Hmm. It would be smashed at a place where that should be espoused more than in any other. Yeah, it's fascinating. I always wonder sometimes if people are reacting to Jesus or if they're reacting to that statement or both, or if they're just reacting against the fact that nobody wants to be confronted with what I think is actually an irrational view of life and truth. The way I like to present this to people, I say, uh, typically speaking, truth is more complex than we like to think it is. In our relativistic, pluralistic world, we just like to make this assumption that truth is very basic. It's my experience and my experience only. It reminds me of the, you know, the story of the three blind men and the elephant. You know, the one blind man uh, touches the elephant tail and he says, aha, an elephant is like a snake. And the other man touches the elephant leg and he says, no, 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 the elephant is like a tree. And then the third man, you know, handles the elephant's ear and he says, oh, no, the elephant is a very delicate bird, uh, can feel his wings, you know. And they all walk away thinking that they know the elephant. In the meantime, someone in the background is saying, no, <laughs> the elephant is this marvelous, complicated union of all of these things into this one entity that is beautiful and fabulous and majestic in its own. And you've done it injustice by thinking it a snake or a tree or a bird. And the same people that embrace that analogy go on to tell us that they do know all the knowledge to be able to tell us that analogy, <laughs> yes. right? If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR, 91.9 FM and 93.9 FM here in Durango. You can also listen in at kdur.org online. Thanks so much for listening. We're talking about pluralism and specifically religious pluralism right now. We've talked about how pluralism can be a positive thing when we realize that even in spite of our differences, we can love and accept each other. But also it can be a negative thing, Ron, when people begin to think that all ideas are the same and are equally valid. It has been said that ideas have consequences and bad ideas have bad ones. <laughs> we all know that there is such a thing as a bad idea and a wrong answer. And if there is a wrong answer anywhere, it's impossible to say that all ideas are valid. When people say this, that all opinions, all ideas, all beliefs are equally valid, they are absolutely going against the grain of everything they know to be true. Hmm. If their supermarket cashier gave them a $5 bill back as change for a 20 they would say, that's not right, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yep. And that same person would turn around and tell you, all ideas are equal. <laughs> and see, what people yeah. need to recognize is if there's a wrong answer anywhere, then it is true that not all ideas are true and that not all ideas are equal. Mm. And we don't believe that as a society. Each one of us knows that there is a right and a wrong. We know that yep. intuitively. If it weren't that way, you would never argue with somebody that you felt wronged you or that you felt cheated you, you yep. would never disagree with them. See, we know these things intuitively, and on your math test, you never disagree with your professor when you get marked down or when you get notched down a grade in your class, mm -hmm. right? And in your chemistry yep. class, when you make a mistake, you don't argue with the professor about how all truths are equal. Rather, you study harder so that you won't make the mistake next time. 
But when we come to spirituality, all of a sudden, a lot of brains flick off, and we just think, well, everything goes. We would not say that about any other aspect of life, but when it comes to this aspect, everything goes. And we've got to realize that truth is truth in the physical world, and truth is truth in the spiritual world. Mm. Ron, correct me if I'm wrong. If you take away (laughs) the law of non-contradictions... How much of philosophy and logic hold up? Well, we'd have a lot more time on our hands, I would say, <laughs> and we'd have very trouble, very much trouble uh, communicating with each other about what to do with our time. One of my favorite authors in the area, John Hick in the, in the UK, very bright philosopher, very engaging, gracious man. I've actually attended a few of his lectures. I've read uh, many of his works, and uh, just the other day was rereading for thinking about this broadcast, uh, an essay that he did. And he's the one that promotes so actively this idea of religious pluralism is that all paths lead to God because God is so far out there and unknowable, anything that we do to get toward him is indeed valid. And I ponder this and I think what he's saying is a universal truth that God is so far out there that he is unknowable. But why would he say that? That is a statement of truth that is excluding those that would claim any other experience. And I find it so fascinating that he's so widely received and so widely read and accepted in this, in particular, this area of religious philosophy, that he would make a statement so dogmatic on this area and be accepted for that and not realize that that dogmatism is (laughs) self-defeating, absolutely self-defeating. So that's the first principle. Truth is more complex than we think. Freedom is more complex than we think. This idea of truth leading to freedom. And again, just to bash on the airplane pilot one more time, to think that freedom leads to truth would say, I'm just going to fly my plane direct to my destination, and I don't want to hear about any objections. I'm completely free to do so. You know, he is. I just hope I'm not on the plane when he does that. You know, he can't fly south and expect to get to Denver before running out of gas. It's not true. He's not free to do so. There are limitations on him. There are moral limitations. There are rational limitations that we need to recognize. But if we look at the truth first, whether you consider that the rational exercises of the arguments for God, if you consider those the scientific evidences and exercises of empirical testing of theories and data and hypotheses to reach a conclusion of fact, And if you look at moral arguments to come up with a truth about what is right or wrong, all of these things put constraints on us. But if they're true, they actually enable our liberty because liberty isn't just doing what we want. It's making the right choice in the circumstances. It's about the way that our will, our capability of making choices for ourselves complies to reality. And that's, I think, what Jesus is talking about when he says the truth will set you free. He's encouraging us to find the freedom and truthful statements that will lead us to God, that will lead us to forgiveness, to love, to a morality of engaging our neighbor and loving that neighbor unconditionally, to loving God unconditionally. That's the truth that we want, and that's the freedom that we want. And the last thing that I think that brings up is the liberty that Jesus brings us is truly remarkable because it is based on truth. And if there is any one statement that I would make to somebody, it's this idea of pursuit of truth always wins. Pursuit of popular culture always dead ends in the sense of this area of pluralism. 
You know, you can't say that you've experienced the elephant only by feeling the tail. You've not only cheated the truth about the elephant, you've cheated yourself of experiencing that elephant in whole. Why would we do that in our religious ideas, in our religious faith? Why would we do that in our moral conceptions of how our world's supposed to work? It is a false system. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we become free to engage the truth. And then we can have that serious conversation of how does life work? What is what is our origin? You know, where did we come from? What is the meaning of life? Where does love come from? Where does morality come from? And who is Jesus Christ? That, I think, is the ultimate freedom. It's fascinating, again, just this phenomena of somehow thinking that we can switch our brains off and perhaps even switch our morality off when it comes to these religious matters. I remember uh, hearing a debate uh, several years ago now where Someone asked this person who was representing religious pluralism if Jim Jones was right in his giving of, of the you know, infamous Kool-Aid to his followers. And uh, if that was his religious expression, was that valid and was that actually the path to God? And the debater obviously wanted to skirt this issue as much as he could. But ultimately, he said, well, you know, I think so. And I thought, Wow, what could possibly be the defense of such a statement other than none of this matters? You know, why are you even here in the debate? This is amazing that this is being proposed out there on a serious level. I was in Nepal in 1997 trekking. I was there for about two months. Hmm. And I want to shy away from disparaging any religion. Sure. But one thing that I noticed there is the caste system. And the low castes in that country are treated worse than the animals. I remember a young boy that had a huge wound across half of his entire head. And it was rotten with infection. You could see the pus. Nobody would even do a thing to help that boy. And so we might see worldviews like this. And if pluralism in the negative sense is true, then that is just as valid as Mother Teresa helping those people. Right? We would have no position to say one is better than the other. It's just a fascinating phenomenon to look at, how easily people fall into this trap. Obviously, we hold truth as a rational idea. Even though people would love to deny it, there really is this concept of absolute truth, these things that are said as propositions that really do have value, that really do reflect reality. I always think of truth simply as a statement that reflects reality. And the more accurate statement we can make, the bigger picture of reality we get. The Apostle John, when he wrote uh, his book in the New Testament, opened it with these words. He said, in the beginning was the word. And we read that in our Bibles today, and we kind of think, well, that's nice, you know, but I wonder what that is. And John very specifically used a word in the Greek, the Greek word logos, to communicate something to his readers that was very, very important. It was important to them, and it's important to us today. And that idea of logos is a word that we get logic from, or logical. It's the basic word for rationality. And in the Greek philosophy and culture, that had a very distinguished meaning, a very clear meaning in, in its casual usage, particularly developed by Plato, that basically said there is this overarching reason to life. And he didn't mean the intellectual reason. He meant the moral reason, the philosophical reason, the purposeful reason that we are here. And as he developed this idea, it became very much Plato's grand idea. This idea of goodness comes from this idea of rationality, of meaning, purpose, truth. 
all contained in this concept of logos. And that's what the Apostle John was talking about after all these years of traveling with Jesus, witnessing the death of Jesus on the cross. He sat down and said, how can I pin the most dramatic statement about truth that I know? And he put it into a formula, and the formula goes something like this. In the beginning was the reason, was the purpose that we were here, was the grand design of the universe. And that reason was with God, and that reason was God. And this grand relationship of God to his creation is called logic, is called reason in the original language. Fourteen verses later, he says, Jesus was that word, and Jesus, the word, became flesh. And what John was communicating to us is that truth is more than a conceptual idea. Truth is more than a statement about reality. It is the reality of God himself coming to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we try and wrap our heads around that and grasp this idea, we see that truth in that sense is much more lofty than simply a statement about what is. It is reality itself. The God, the creator of the universe, so engaged with his world, so engaged with the people that he created in his own image that he came to earth to commune with them. Jesus came to teach, to do miracles, to validate his own ministry, all to show that when he went to that cross to die for the people that he loved, it would mend the gap that had occurred when people rebelled against their creator. And forgiveness comes through that action and that action alone. Some people would call that exclusivism, and indeed, it's an exclusive, a unique idea, but that is the embodiment of what our meaning is, of what purpose is, to experience our creator through the person of Jesus Christ. This is why Christians defend the Bible. This is why we promote the idea of learning who Jesus is, of exploring the truthfulness of the New Testament, of engaging God in prayer, and ultimately accepting Christ as the truth. He himself said he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the Sermon on the Mount, which people love to comment on in moral philosophy, they very seldom quote the last phrase, the last phrases that Jesus said, there's a wide way that leads to death, and there's this narrow way that leads to life and happiness and peace with God. And I would encourage our listeners today, if this has been intriguing to you, to really explore this idea of pluralism. See the good of pluralism in the defense of human rights, in the promotion of free speech, in the promotion of free press, and understand that it leads us to the truth. And the truth is a person. The truth is a relationship with that person. And there is no greater joy in the world than living the truth with Jesus Christ in our life. And, of course, the bad side, Ron, which we've talked about, is assuming that all beliefs and all belief systems are mm. equally valid regardless of what they propose. Yep. You mentioned John 14, 6 a minute ago, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Mm. He claimed to be the exclusive way to God yep. and to salvation. So for the bad side of the pluralism equation, the all faiths are equal and all faiths are valid, if that is your belief, you have to say that, yes, Jesus in that statement was valid. Mm -hmm. And the second you say Jesus in that statement was valid, you agree that pluralism is wrong. <laughs> and again, we come to this law of non-contradictions in yeah. philosophy with the negative side of modern pluralism. 
So again, we would encourage you to seek truth out. That's yes. the desire that we both have in doing this show is to encourage you in your own journey to explore what is truly true about the universe. We believe that is Jesus expressed in his word. And I believe that you'll find that as well as you search. We want to invite you to join us at Connect this week. Tuesday at 7.30, we'll be meeting in the Student Life Center in room 119. It'll be a phenomenal time, and I really hope you'll be able to join us. We'd also encourage you to visit a community of believers that meets right here on campus every Sunday. They meet in Noble Hall in room 130 at 6 p.m. They're called Matthew's House. So I would encourage you to check out Matthew's House this Sunday at 6 p.m. in Noble Hall, room 130. I want to leave you with one last encouragement. An open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Ron and I both found Jesus that way, and I'm sure you will too. We would encourage you to pursue the truth, to follow wherever it leads, and I'm confident that will lead you to Jesus. Mm. Thanks so much for listening today. Oh, God.